right, good afternoon. We can go ahead and begin. I'm Scott Stanley, and I do a lot of things, but what I do that I like best and that I've done a lot of my adult life is research. So this is actually going to be a fairly researchy talk. going to cover a few passages of scripture along the way, but I'm really going to focus in on research that we do on cohabitation and other things before people get married at the University of Denver, so where I'm a research professor, um, where I work with uh, my colleagues uh, Howard Markman and Galena Rhodes, and I'll say a fair amount about, or I'll mention Galena a couple times as we go, because she's really my major colleague in this area. And I'll explain as we go along here the, the origin of the title, Sliding versus Deciding, because it's really a, a key part of the talk in terms of understanding some of the insights about cohabitation before marriage that have emerged at this point from the research we do. And where this is going to go is really going to focus a lot on the development of commitment and how commitment develops so poorly these days for so many couples and how that relates to things like cohabiting before marriage and other patterns. So that's what I'll be explaining. I want to start off, though, by just uh, saying a few things about why commitment matters. I think we all know it matters, but people don't actually talk and think a lot about the structure of commitment or what commitment really is made up of in terms of components for couples and how it develops, and, and that's more the nature of this talk. So one of the reasons why commitment really matters is that children are increasingly born into low commitment contexts. That's a whole other talk, but I just want to say, uh, those of you, I'm 59, uh, just the truth in advertising, I know I look 44, um, but it, it, the, if you're anywhere near my age, the most gigantic change in family in your lifetime that nobody would have predicted 40 years ago is the growing number of children that are born uh, to couples that really have low or no particular commitment figured out. So the odds of those two people remaining together, raising that child, are, are very low. And even while the divorce rate has leveled off from the highest levels that it has been, or at least there's pretty good evidence that it's leveled off some, uh, the degree to which children are born in unstable context in terms of commitment just keeps going up and up and up. And I don't actually see anything on the horizon at the moment to slow it down from the standpoint of research. But again, that's another talk. I'm going to talk first about the importance of lasting love and, and how that how commitment helps make that possible. I'm going to say a little bit about the fact that we have bodies because I think the fact that we have bodies makes commitment a lot more crucial in terms of how marriages turn out. You'll see what I have to say about that. And uh, that commitment is the antidote to ambiguity. So those are the opening sort of things, and then we'll move on toward the sliding deciding point. First off, I just want to, to highlight the importance of commitment. I often use this a picture of my dog, Odie, when he was a puppy. This is the from the first night that we brought him home. And yeah, so go ahead and do that as a group. That is the proper response. Unless you're a cat person, then you can just kind of squint your eyes real tight, and he can look almost like a cat if you need him to. Now, Odie's kind of an old man dog now. He's actually going to have surgery on Friday, so you could, you could pray for pray for Odie if you want, but uh, uh, he's going to be 15 soon, so this is when we got him as a puppy. But I'm only showing you this picture 
really to tell you this one point and you'll get it. If you think about whether you're a dog person or not, if you are, you'll especially get it. You see this face and you fall in love or you start to get attached. In fact, there was an article just this week or last week in the New York Times about how uh, you get a, a jolt of oxytocin release in your body. I'll talk about that in a minute too when you look into a puppy's eyes. So uh, that, that, that's a chemical of attachment. But when you see this little face, here's the point I want to make. You fall in love with the front end of the puppy. But every puppy has, comes with a back end. And that's the way marriage is. You know, we, we fall in love. There's infatuation, we're enraptured, you know, the early in relationships, there's all that stuff going on. But that's not the work part, that's not the cute part, that's not the fun part. Uh, the fun part is all about, with the dog, it's all about the back end. And that's why a lot of dogs, of course, get returned. It's not that, you know, they take it back in three weeks, it's not cute anymore. Uh, and I'm not saying everything stays cute forever, but just, you know, life takes work and regulation and some discipline, and that's the back end of the puppy. On another point, I think having a body makes commitment in marriage really crucial. One of the reasons is this, and it's, uh, I think the best answer available period about why we have bodies is in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where it says we have this treasure in jars of clay that the surpassing greatness of the power may be from God and not ourselves. And what I think that passage teaches, what I think Paul is saying there, is we have bodies because either fast or slow, Sooner or later, your body will completely humiliate you, and your body will make it. My wife says I'm a really cheery person, by the way. Does it, uh, so I'll, I'll try to show you what she lives with a little bit today. Uh, your body will completely make it clear to you, to me, to all of us, that you're not God. It, the greatness is from God, and it's not in ourselves. And one of the implications of this, I think, for marriage is when two people really commit to a life together and want lasting love, they're also committing to be together through watching each other decay. And, and that's a very serious point. And the couples that are really doing the best in life, who really have what people really want, is that deep acceptance and commitment that they know is there that they can trust, even though they're not so pretty anymore, or not so slim anymore, or it's harder to stay in shape, or there's serious health problems to work through, or one has to start taking care of the other. And it's commitment, it's really that deep commitment that allows it to really be possible to be so imperfect and still know you're really loved by this other person. And that's the kind of message that uh, is not anywhere in our culture now in terms of what people are sold. And it's all about romance, it's all about looking hot all the time and those are really going to be a weak foundation for lasting love. Mm -hmm. And then uh, another reason why having a body matters is chemistry is very involved in falling in love. And I'm not going to go deeply into this path either, but everybody's theology needs to take into account the fact that we have bodies, the fact that there's a lot of chemistry involved, the fact that there's genetics involved. And all of those things matter in terms of uh, how things turn out for people in life. And the part that we actually have control over and why commitment is so important is the part that we choose, the part, the, our will. We have free will, 
we can be obedient, we can choose to do this, or we can choose to do that. We don't have control over a lot of other things, but we have some choice. As far as chemistry goes, when people will fall in love, adrenaline's very involved. There's all that excitement and anxiety. There's dopamine, which is really very much the chemical of sort of feeling pleasure and euphoria. Dopamine's also, of course, very much involved in addictions. You know, most addictions are going to have some element of dopamine involved somewhere. Uh, so it's kind of the reward center. And then as people get, get attached, and it doesn't take a lot to start getting attached chemically, uh, oxytocin is a chemical that becomes involved in terms of uh, people becoming more sort of bonded together. A lot of people think about oxytocin as the chemical of attachment. Uh, it probably has some other uh, complicated sort of things, but uh, people do think about it as the chemical of attachment. It's the chemical that floods women's bodies at childbirth. Men and women both have oxytocin. By the way, I'm holding oxytocin spray. So just hold on a minute. I'm going to spray you all. Uh, actually, I'll spray myself first just so you know it's harmless. Um, but uh, I'll just spray the room here. I find it helps my uh, bonding with the audiences. Um, inhale a little bit now. Everybody take a deep breath. Just trust me on this, right? This is called liquid trust. So, um, and now, uh, most everything I've said so far is true. Uh, no, everything I've said so far is true. And this is true, too. This is sold as oxytocin. Now, do I know whether oxytocin is really in here or not? I don't know. You can buy this on the internet. So if you want your own bottle, I don't make any profits from Liquid Trust. Um, but what's interesting is, is oxytocin, uh, some economists actually use it now in testing like game theory scenarios where they're looking at what sort of deal people will make in terms of a bargain with another person. And if you spray people a bit with oxytocin, they make a better deal when they shouldn't necessarily because they're mostly making, I mean, they make a more generous deal toward the other. So people are a little more trusting when they get a jolt of oxytocin. And here's how it, it comes into play in terms of how people develop these days. You get a jolt of oxytocin when you touch somebody, when you hug somebody, when you have sex, when you have an orgasm. All these, there's a lot of things. And like I said, looking into a puppy's eyes. So a lot of things release oxytocin, and oxytocin is going to bias a person toward being more trusting to who they're with, with their, who they're with, and to be sort of more bonded. So if you think about how rapidly things develop these days in relationships, there's a whole lot going on really fast that's affecting people in terms of how their relationship develops. Now, one of the things that's also changed in uh, my lifetime and many of yours is one of the things that is very characteristic of romantic relationships now before marriage is ambiguity. If you'll notice, people try in tremendous number of ways to not be clear, to not have to declare themselves, to say what they really want, to even, uh, you know, when I was in high school, the concept of a DTR talk, define the relationship talk, didn't even exist. You were either dating, or you were going steady, or you were engaged, or you were married. I mean, there was like these categories, and there was a clear kind of progression if you were going to end up going the distance. And all of that's been really shredded from the culture now, with a little bit of an exception of Facebook status, which is kind of an interesting reemergence of this. 
But people now prefer ambiguity, and it's everywhere. Even you'll find numerous articles on the internet, a couple of them by me or based on the research of uh, me and my colleague, Galena Rhodes, just people even wondering, is this a date? Whatever we're doing Friday night, is this going to be a date? People don't have a good sense of what a date is um, and ambiguous sense of uh, what a relationship is. Cohabitation is a quintessential example of a, an ambiguous relationship form. I'll come to that in a minute. I think ambiguity is everywhere now because fears about commitment are channeled into an aversion of risk. That people have seen a lot of divorce, they've seen a lot of, and the big thing now is just not getting married. Uh, divorce is kind of becoming passe, if you will, but just not getting married. Couple uh, kids growing up with uh, the parents churning through relationships, being with lots of different partners, where children are attaching and detaching and attaching and detaching. Uh, people fear committing because they fear that being clear is going to make it more painful when they get rejected. If you think about it in a real simple way, the more clearly you've declared what you really want and who you are and what you'd like to have happen in life or in the relationship, the more deeply you could get rejected. The problem for people in, in today's sort of dating premarital culture is ambiguity as a relationship goes on and there really is getting to be a deeper attachment uh, as ambiguity continues as more and more is invested in the relationship and people in some other ways are starting to risk more in a relationship there's a lot more to lose when it's kept unclear over time but people will often now try to keep things unclear as long as possible uh, on the bigger scale of society, before I really turn into talking about cohabitation, research on cohabitation, I think you could make an argument. You can't really measure this, so I can't prove this to you, but I think we could argue that we're probably raising the greatest number of little people ever who are going to grow up with insecure attachments because of uh, what's happened with the family. And as I said a minute ago, we have a culture now that decreasingly provides steps and stages and ways for it to be easily clear between two people in kind of a courtship phase, if you will, of life, to be really clear with each other and clarify how committed, are we a couple? Are we uh, going steady? Again, that term's just not used anymore. When people say, today I'm in a relationship, it's kind of like what we meant by going steady about 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, but ambiguity reigns. Now, if commitment matters, it matters how it, de it develops. And one of the things that we've done in a lot of research on cohabitation is to think a lot about what's going on in these relationships. How do you explain some of the paradoxical findings in this area? And that's led to some really interesting insights. And let me start by saying I, I started measuring commitment in research, uh, and I'm talking about quantitative research, uh, measuring individuals and couples and people over time and how things change and how that relates to what happens in the future. You can think about commitment uh, as divided into two really broad categories that'll be useful for us for thinking developmentally about couples here. One is dedication. When I say dedication, I really mean how intrinsically motivated is somebody to give to the other, to form an identity as a couple with this person, to protect this relationship from alternatives, 
to sacrifice for the other, to want a future and behave like you're investing in a future. That's all of what dedication is about. If you'd like, and I probably will comment on this later, depending on how much of all the slides I get through, uh, dedication is a lot like agape love in the New Testament. So if you think about 1 Corinthians 13, it's actually pretty much describing what I, as a researcher, would call the dedication part of what commitment's about. And agape love is often talked about as committed love. Obviously, it's also the, the, the love reflected uh, to us by Christ on the cross. Now, constraint commitment doesn't usually get a lot of attention, but it's a really big deal in relationships. Constraints are the things that reflect all of what two people would have to unwind to come apart. So if they were going to break up, what would they have to do? Who would have to move? Uh, how would they divide things up? Are there children? What would other people think in terms of social pressure? What would they think themselves about beliefs about divorce? All of those things reflect constraints. Or how, how good do I think my alternatives are? That's going to be a constraint. If I don't think my alternatives to this relationship are very good anyway, I'm more likely to stay in the relationship I'm in, all of the things being equal. So that's the kind of thing that constraints speak to. So I'm going to use those terms. I mentioned Galena. Uh, just a, one other quick comment about Galena. Galena, Howard Marklin and I have been working together since 1977. Galena and I have been working together since 2000. And so she and I really work a lot on this premarital relationship stuff, on cohabitation. Uh, Galena's younger than me, not religious, female, and liberal. She's everything I'm not. Um, so, w but what's fascinating about the things that I'll talk about here related to our research is we agree on all of these things. Uh, we don't agree on everything. There's plenty of things we don't agree on, and I'm sure we've rarely, if ever, voted the same way in our lives. Uh, but when we get into this area of research and think about what's actually happening for people, what do people do, what do people think, how does it relate to their behavior, same page. So, historically, and you've heard this, premarital cohabitation has been associated with greater odds of divorce, lower marital satisfaction, more conflict and poor communication in marriage, and actually about anything you could measure in marriage in terms of how well a marriage is doing on average, living together before marriage has historically, in many, many studies over many decades, been associated with not doing as well in marriage. Now, I want to explain that in a minute in terms of why that is, but I also want to comment on two things. One is a little bit of a, it's a very complex thing that I'm not going to try to explain because I want to get on to key points, but it's possible that this effect has weakened in the last 10 to 15 years. It probably has weakened, although it gets into really complex issues about research when you have more and more, if not, if not most people, doing something that's <coughs> risky it becomes harder to figure out if that's really risky because who are you going to compare them to? Uh, so there's a lot of complexity here. But y you can certainly say this, and I, I write a lot, uh, you know, we, do, we, we publish a lot of journal articles, but I also write a lot about these things on my blog, which is slidingversusdeciding.com, so you can read a ton of different things about cohabitation and other things related to commitment or couple development there if you'd like. But here's an interesting fact. 
unbalanced, there's almost no evidence that living together before marriage improves one's odds of doing well in marriage. Uh, what's arguable is the degree to which it's related to not doing as well in marriage, and, and I will flesh that out in more detail in a second. Um, why this is fascinating is, at least in terms of survey data, I haven't seen anybody do data on this in a long time, but at least as of about 15 years or so ago, the number one thing that people believe they can do to improve their odds in marriage is to live together first. It's, it's like by far the biggest belief. Well, of course you would do that. Of course this makes sense. Of course this is going to improve our odds. When virtually no, st I say virtually, there's a couple little odd findings here and there, but by and large, the literature is completely suggesting the other way. Uh, and at best, it doesn't really say there's an advantage, but this is what people believe. So of course, there's a strong desire and a press within people to go ahead and live together before marriage because they're thinking, well, this is going to improve our odds. Um, now, I'd say about twice a year you'll get a giant flurry of media about some studies' findings related to cohabitation before marriage because people are really interested in it. And this is uh, one of the blasts about a year ago from a study that came out by Ariel Cooperberg. And I, I this headline was just one of my favorites. Call your dad. I guess mom's not interested in this, right? Uh, call your dad. Living together before marriage does not lead to divorce. Just no problem, okay? And you'll, and you'll see these headlines all over the place. In fact, if you just Google this or, or look for sort of headlines about this, you'll, you'll find this unless you run into our stuff, and then you'll get something else. Now, here's a, an important point to realize. That and I'm speaking just as a researcher right now, in fact, for a little bit here, I'm just going to be speaking as a researcher, and then I'll, I'll pull it back uh, to a, a bigger frame in terms of uh, worldview and uh, beliefs as a Christian. That finding, that kind of idea that living together before marriage is associated with no added risk, turns out that it's true from a research perspective for a pretty select group that tends to have these kinds of characteristics. They only started to cohabit after they had mutual clear plans for marriage. They've only, this is the really important one. This is the one we've done a ton of research on. But this one, think about this one for a second. They only ever cohabited with the person that they married. Did anything about that headline say that to you? No. Because uh, one of the things that's become really clear in research on cohabitation is serial cohabitation is very strongly associated with increased risk of divorce, for example. So living together with more people before marriage is a real danger sign, and uh, you're not going to get that out of any of these kinds of headlines. And the trick of this one, which is interesting, is if you do have somebody that's very marriage-oriented, and they want to be married, and they want to marry this person. Now leave out for a moment what that person wants, but let's say, I want to marry this person. I'm uh, keep in mind the chemistry, right? I'm in love with this person. I'm maybe head over heels with this person. I really want to be with this person. I might want to get this person to live with me because I know that I'm thinking that's a step toward marriage, right? Uh, so I might want that to happen. Am I thinking this is going to be the first of three different people I'm going to live with? No, I'm thinking you're the one. This is it. I mean, I've seen enough. Uh, I'm ready to go. Let's move in together and at least sort of test it. And if we don't find anything bad about the relationship, there we are. We'll be good to go. 
uh, we'll live together, and then we'll get married. One of the other things that's happened, it's not on this uh, panel of findings, but it's, it's in a lot of things I've written about lately on the blog side, is we've recently crossed over uh, an interesting point in the last five or six years or so where people that, back when I was in college, people that lived together before marriage were highly likely to go on and get married. Now, most people that live together, more often than not, when somebody lives together, they're not going to end up marrying that person. They're going to end up breaking up. However, that is one of the greatest areas of growth for children born out of wedlock is born to cohabiting couples. In fact, in the last 10 years or so, maybe the last 15 years, the greatest, most all of the increase in children born out of wedlock uh, are children born to cohabiting couples who are much more likely to break up, say, by the time the child is age five than couples that are married. The reason being is the couples that are married usually have clarified a really clear lifetime commitment before things got really complicated with the child. And that's a huge difference that, again, is not easily seen just absorbing things in the culture. People that get married later, uh, and then this one is a big one, uh, and I just addressed that in a way, not having a child uh, before cohabiting and getting married. So this kind of no added risk headline, it's true for some group from a research standpoint, but it's actually not most people. But the headline's never going to say that to people. The headline's just going to say it's a great idea. Now, I want to talk about two key reasons that cohabiting before marriage uh, is associated with more difficulties in marriage. One of them is one that's important to understand if you're going to talk with people about this, this is really a, an important thing to get, is that a lot of why historically couples who lived together before marriage didn't do as well in marriage is that they were also the people that were most likely to not do as well in marriage anyway. So that's what a researcher in this kind of context, that's what a social scientist means by a selection effect. But they were already select for being at greater risk and the cohabitation may or may not have added to it. Now I'm going to explain to you a really important way that it can add to that risk. But usually what really goes into selection in this area is people that are less traditional, more open to divorce, less religious, more likely to have parents who divorced or never married, all of these kinds of different things you can think of that are associated with risk for divorce or for not doing so well in marriage, it's the same group that are most likely to actually live together before marriage or now as things have changed to what I call cohabitating, uh, which is cohabiting that's just sort of more like dating than not even sort of thinking about and planning and preparing for marriage as at least it was 40 years ago. Uh, the people that are most likely to do that are the people that were already at higher risk for divorce. So that's what we mean by selection. So for so to some degree, some of the risk is baked into pe for people, uh, which means it's not necessarily causal. Now, I'm going to explain our theory, which is causal, which is really important and provides a pretty powerful way to slow somebody down and to think about how to talk with somebody about, I mean, you can talk with people in terms of theology and biblical teaching and, and traditions of the church about not living together. But if you actually want to explain to somebody 
why it's risky for them just from the standpoint of how life tends to turn out for people that's what I'm going to give you now as a way to talk with people about that and this element this is a causal element this isn't selection this is something where living together actually adds a certain kind of risk for a person and it's related to what I call inertia so if you think about inertia from your favorite physics teacher sometime in your past which I know you all have inertia is the the, the property of an object that speaks to how much energy it's going to take to move it from where it is to somewhere else or move it from the trajectory it's on to a different trajectory so these chairs all have a certain amount of inertia the one you're sitting on has more inertia than this one but how much energy do I need to apply to move it here's the key point cohabitation has more inertia than dating and not cohabiting it takes more energy to change it to move it to break it up to do something and here's where you can connect that back now to that point I made about the constraint part of commitment and constraints are things that make it more costly or harder to break up here's the simple point cohabitation makes it harder to break up and that's what people don't see they don't see that they're about to make it harder to break up before they've usually actually clearly identified what they want for the future so keep in mind I'm still talking as a researcher here so I first got this idea a long time ago with a data set I was looking at in the mid 90s which was actually collected related to a project that uh, um, if you remember those of you uh, dating myself here but how many remember Gary Smalley's uh, infomercials in the videotape series uh, some of you are way too young for this because this is like VHS tapes too um, so some of you may never have seen that um, so you get like these 24 tapes that, that Gary Smalley had and those, that infomercial was at least at the time it was there was like three different iterations of them and they were the most successful infomercials like in the history of television at the time about marriage and they really did well and anyway they wanted some findings to present in the last series on that which uh, featured uh, John Tesh and Connie Selica was the host with Gary on TV and uh, me and my, ho uh, my colleague Howard Markman we got some national data in a phone survey we got a budget from them anyway I'm, I'm analyzing these data and I'm looking at a finding related to cohabitation everybody was married and one of the things I found in the data set is the, the people that said especially the men actually although we get sometimes Galena and I get the the different finding for men versus women and sometimes we don't but in this particular finding that sort of led to a lot of this thought about inertia found the men who said that they lived with their wives before marriage were on average there's always exceptions right were on average substantially less dedicated to their wives in marriage now than the men who said they did not live with their wife before marriage everybody kind of getting that idea um, and I'm thinking well everybody here is married everybody kind of walked the aisle or at least did the justice of the peace thing so how can this be why would these guys on average uh, plenty of those guys wouldn't have been lower on dedication but why would these guys who said they lived with their wife beforehand be lower in dedication and I'm thinking about that and it came to me because I, th I think a lot about constraint versus dedication I, I had this question in my mind did some of these guys marry somebody they wouldn't have married if they hadn't started living together before they got married Did some of them increase the constraints enough and I think this actually happens a lot 
that people increase the constraints enough in the relationship early on that is not the person they would have stayed with. Now, for in many cases, it is the person they would have ended up with, just to be clear. So many people, it's the very same person they would have chosen if they'd never lived together. But for some other subset, and I can't tell you how large, but it's enough, I think, to matter and to produce the kind of findings that we get, that there's this group that I'm ending up marrying you because we moved in together. Otherwise, we would have broken apart. We wouldn't have had that child. It wouldn't have gotten hard to break a, a, apart all of our possessions or for me to move out or whatever. That's the group that we're most concerned about in terms of the research. So the crux is that there's greater constraints from living together compared to dating, all other things being equal. And this is what people don't see. But you can actually explain this to people fairly quickly. One of the big downsides to living together before marriage is especially before engagement, and I'll, I'll clarify that in a second because that's a, a research prediction, is that you're going to make it harder to break up before you've really decided that you have a future together or that you should have a future together or that you're prepared enough for a future together. So this is an example of two things that this idea of inertia predicts. One is, again, as a researcher, it's easy to predict that that should be less of a factor or a non-factor for people that were really clear we're going to marry each other, mutually clear, before they moved in together. So this is the research prediction. Those who are already engaged before they cohabit or who just wait until marriage, those two groups, on average, are going to look different than the people that live together before they're mutually clear and publicly declared about planning to marry because it's that group that's going to be succumbing or more likely to have this problem of inertia. Is everybody with me on what I'm describing there? So that's one prediction of this theory. And this finding comes up everywhere it's been tested. Uh, and that's uh, six different, um, is that six or five? I should be able to count. I thought it was six. Yeah. So there's, there's different data sets, there's different researchers. Now that first paper, that's Galena before she got married and changed her name to Rhodes. So uh, Klein is now Rhodes. Uh, so most of those are us. Two of those are, uh, this one's a sociologist, this one's sociologist using different data set. So that's one prediction of inertia. Uh, if you want to read more about things like this, by the way, uh, Galena and I had a report for the National Marriage Project using a national data set that we've developed over the years with funding from NIH, where we presented a lot of findings about things like living together before marriage, having a child before marriage, number of sexual partners. It's very much a secular piece. It's talking to the middle of Main Street about relationships, with the general point being that a lot of what happens in relationship history and in relationships before people kind of find the one matters for how they're going to do in marriage. Matters for marital quality. I don't know if you can see this shirt, but it says uh, what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas. So this Vegas idea we, we talk a lot about and the fact that having a, a lot of relationship experience, especially a lot of you know, different sexual partners, different cohabiting partners, etc is risky and people don't really talk about that or think about that much in terms of what they're given from the culture but that that whole report's on the web you can find it and read about it now i want to be clear here so what i'm describing so far is a really clear science 
specific prediction that's been well supported and replicated. Uh, this replicated is actually an unusual thing in social science. There's a lot of cool findings you'll hear in the media that nobody's ever going to get again. This is a very strong theory predicting a specific kind of pattern that we and others find over and over again now. Uh, and I just want to comment, and I'll, I'll come back to this in a, in a different way in a bit. Uh, the science is really consistent, but it's not perfectly aligned with Christian teaching on sex and marriage, right? I mean, you can, you can see that. Um, but, you know, you can see the general tendency here in terms of findings, and you'll certainly also get that sense in that National Marriage Project before I do report, is things tend to line up really pretty well with what you'd think is core solid teaching about marriage and relationships. One thing I always like to say about social science findings, uh, Christians do tend, and I am one, but I don't tend to do this, I, um, I have other struggles. Um, Christians tend to way overstate social science findings, and, and you're doomed if you do this, but scientifically that's just not going to be true. Uh, there's a lot of couples that do everything. This is a theologically either comforting or very troubling thought, but it's very biblical, in fact. There's a lot of people that do everything right and struggle a lot in life. And there's other people that do almost everything the wrong way or the way their parents said they shouldn't or their pastor said they shouldn't, and they just keep landing on their feet and do fine. And, and there's a lot of that that's somewhat... So we're talking about relative average here, relative odds. So the crux here, now here's, here's what I want you to notice, because this is the part I'm going to work on now a little bit. The crux of what I'm describing here as a dilemma is that the way relationships develop now, people are often, in all kinds of areas, developing and increasing constraints prior to dedication maturing in the relationship. And that has huge implications, because historically, uh, not ideally, but what you'd really want ideally is you'd want to see dedication to really mature before we start making it harder to get out of this relationship. And people do just the opposite now because they're told in so many ways it's no big deal. So we've also shown, I won't go through these findings, but um, one of the things that inertia predicts is that when people move in together, constraints would take a significant jump up and then they would start to accumulate faster. And we show exactly that in, a, in another paper that we published uh, in 2012. So people are moving along, dedication sort of, you know, kind of increasing. And then they move in together. And what we find in this sample, it's a very good sample for this analysis, is dedication sort of levels off then, and not at a high enough level that you would think on average that people are going to really do well in marriage, though there's going to be plenty of people in there that are at a higher level. But dedication sort of levels off, and constraints just start to skyrocket because they've done exactly what we're describing here. They're making it harder to break up, and they're increasing. Now, if cohabitation is associated with increased constraints, people would be careful about that, right? No, because, again, what are they told in the culture? What do they tend to believe? This is a smart thing to do. This is going to actually help us determine if we're the right ones, etc. And by the way, in, in another paper uh, that we published, uh, Galena presents findings where we show, again, purely secular research perspective, uh, the number one worst reason somebody could give to move in with their partner is to test the relationship. And uh, to make a long story short there, it looks to us like this. If you feel like you need to move in with somebody to test the relationship, you already have the data you need, and the relationship didn't pass the test. 
So why would you make it harder to break up with this person in, in terms of collecting more information? So at least, you know, if somebody's going to collect more information, they should collect it without increasing the difficulty of breaking up. So no, but what turns out people actually do is they, they don't actually deliberate and even talk and think about cohabiting. They tend to slide into it. This first was found in a qualitative study by Wendy Manning and Pam Smock, uh, interviewing a lot of people. Uh, a researcher in Australia named Joe Lindsay found something earlier and similar. That people sort of, they don't say, well, we talked about it, thought about it, and made a decision. It's more like, well, you know, I was over there four nights a week, and then six nights a week, and then seven nights a week, and then we sort of didn't notice when his lease was up, and we're, you know, there's more and more, there's a little space in the closet, and now I got a drawer, and now I'm keeping, and, and it's just gradual. And what they found is more, uh, somewhat more than half the time, it was sliding. In our big quantitative national data set, uh, at the start of the study, is two-thirds that are cohabiting describe something more like sliding. Now, of those who end up getting married, and that's the group we talk about in that National Marriage Project report, if you want to get it and read it, uh, in that group of the people that lived together first, uh, less than half of those that cohabited said that they slid into it. But that's still a, it's a big number, 37% of those that cohabited before marriage, which is about 70% of the people that get married these days, are essentially saying we split into it. And they're not, on average, as happy in marriage. They're, they're struggling more in marriage than, than other folks. Now here's a really big point, and I'm gonna develop it in a couple of ways. Commitments are decisions. So there's a really important contrast here between sliding and deciding. Because if you're making a commitment you're making a choice to give up other choices. Think about anything you've ever done in life that really matters where you were making a commitment and something you were doing something that really mattered. You were aware that you're giving up other... You might not have kind of seen all the choices or known exactly what that was going to be in life, but you pretty much you're committing yourself to path A and not everything else that could have happened on path B, C, or D in life. That's the nature of commitment. It's even, that's the nature of commitment when you choose what to eat when you go out to eat. Unless you're going to order 10 entrees, you know, you're going to choose one. And when you choose one, you're giving up the other, unless it's a buffet. So that messes up the metaphor. So I shouldn't say that. Um, commitment's making a choice to give up other choices, which says a lot about why commitment would be really a struggle in the culture now. Now I'm going to play a, a video for four minutes. And then I want to talk about some implications of this kind of way of thinking. This video, uh, so most of my research colleagues, almost all of my research colleagues, are non-religious, liberal, secular folks, uh, where we see a lot of these things similarly. And maybe a little more than half of our team, we have a whole company called Prep, where we make materials for people in terms of relationship education. There's a thing you can, if you're interested, on the back of the brochure there, you can send us your email address or you can fill that in and leave it with me and we'll just send you some stuff and then the team will send you some emails if you want to learn more. The team created this video based on this research about three years ago and it's brilliant. Now this is on, at least for the time being, we also have this on YouTube. If you look up uh, Relationship DUI, you can get it on YouTube. And also, it's uh, on a disc you can get if for some reason that would be useful to you. But this is a, 
here's a secular team, mostly secular team, taking this thought. And I want you to realize this isn't like a biblical message. This is a message to the middle of the street. This is the person in the culture, and this is the message, the way they took the research, which I think they did a great job, to sort of describe to somebody what happens in sort of a mysterious way when you don't end up with the person that really maybe was the best partner for you because of these things. You know how it is. You're just living your life. Work, friends, stuff. Always running from one thing to the next. Then wham, you run into your soulmate. And your whole world becomes vibrant. Everything changes. You can't concentrate at work. Your friends are put on the back burner. Normal stuff no longer matters. What matters is making your soulmate happy. You start to enjoy the music they listen to, and you become a fan of their favorite sports teams. You realize that you really want to learn how to cook, and you spend every possible second together. Further, you co-sign on a car for them. You jump into a shared cell phone plan. You become the proud parents of Princess. Maybe you talk about moving into an apartment together, and time marches on. Then one day, it's as if you're seeing this person for the very first time. Sure, you're both active, but not in the same way. Yes, you both have hopes for the future, but one wants to settle down, and the other wants to take off on adventures. You're not sure what happened exactly, but you realize that while this person is great, they're not great for you. You'd like to break up, but uh-oh, you're more locked in than you realize. What about that car loan? How much will it cost to break your cell phone contract? Will there be a custody battle over Princess? And just imagine how much harder it would be to break up if both your names were on the lease. Wow, how in the world did this happen? You acted on the belief that you had a timeless love, but in reality, you had a time-limited chemical high. When we first fall for someone, the brain makes and releases an abnormal amount of chemicals into the body that affect how we think and feel. For example, there's dopamine, norepinephrine, and oxytocin. These are some of the chemicals that make us feel happy, energetic, and connected to others. During this period, you're in an altered state of mind, a kind of drug state. So it makes sense to do the kinds of things that join your lives together little things that lock you in. But the high doesn't last forever. At some point, your chemical levels will become more normal. And the same person you locked in with in your drug state is, in many cases, not the person you see yourself with for the long haul, but you locked in before giving yourself a chance to come to. What is the better way? Take your time to enjoy one another without doing the things that make it harder to break up. Go ahead and fix up the current lemons. Don't sign for a new car. Buy Princess the Fish, not Princess the Puppy. Keep your own place. Don't sign a lease together. Decide to do the things that bring you closer. Don't slide into the things that lock you in. So what's the big takeaway from all this? 
again. Take it slow so you don't get a DUI. Decision under the influence. So you can see there's a lot of other teaching not there, right? If you think about everything that was presented this morning about really approaching working with young people in terms of discipling and deepening their relationship, drawing them toward Christ. None of that's there. This is, this is a video designed to slow people down about the dominant messages in the culture about getting your lives interconnected and so intertwined so quickly that you cannot see clearly about what you really are going to do. And what happens is people do this now. This is the sliding versus the sliding. I'm going to just explain the crux of this and talk about uh, some ministry implications. And there's some other things I won't get into in terms of just uh, protecting dedication over time because uh, we'll run out of time. But the, if you think about how sex happens these days, cohabiting we've just been talking about, having children, this is a big area where people slide into having children now. An uh, unbelievable number of children are born now uh, not to two people who have already decided let's do life together, let's have that commitment together, and let's raise a family together. Children are just coming uh, without there being that kind of lifelong commitment before the child arrives, which is not a good deal for the children. So think about all these transitions are things that people slide through, uh, which people certainly slid through things, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But this is a sea change. I mean, this is, this is a really 40 years or so ago, 50 years ago, if you said to a reputable social scientist, here's how it's going to look 40 years from now, people just laugh at you. I mean, it's just the amount of change we've seen is unimaginable. So here's a lower risk sequence. Now, I'm going to be in a slightly secular mode here conceptually again, but you'll get how to apply this. Here's what I think people would do in a lower-risk sequence, uh, irregardless of, let's say they had no faith, no belief, whatever. They're going to, th and you could apply this to any kind of major decision in life. You get information, in this case, about the relationship. Is this a safe relationship? Is there compatibility here? Is the commitment mutual? Mutual commitment's a big deal. People delude themselves all the time about how committed their partner is. And one of the big consequences of a culture where ambiguity reigns in romantic relationships before marriage is that when things are so ambiguous, it makes it much easier for there to be one person that's substantially less committed than the other person and to hide out. Because nothing in the culture is flushing that out. Nothing's pushing a mutual declaration or clarification. So let's say, uh, again, low risk, I get information, I make a decision, and then there's a transition. And then let me comment here about, I've said a lot about constraints. I just want you to notice here, I'm going to argue by definition these things, these transitions, sexual contact, cohabiting, having a baby, marriage, I mean, it's really especially obvious to anybody these days. Some people would argue about the other ones, but I think these are life-altering transitions, okay? Or at least totally scientifically, potentially life-altering trend, and they always come with reduced options or more constraints uh, than what the person had before. Everybody with me on that part? 
Now, notice, by the way, most of our arguments with the culture and most of how Christians approach talking with people, and I, there's a lot of rightness in this, by the way, because it is right, is we usually are talking um, vertically within this box as opposed to also trying to help people see what's going on this way. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Um, now, you can make a strong argument, by the way, is that things vertically in this box have always had a certain sequence in terms of Christian teaching because they make it more likely that the other stuff's also happening well. They don't guarantee that the other things are happening well, but a certain sequence makes it more likely. But here's how we do relationships now. We slide through the transition. We don't have as many options as we did after the transition. And then we get the information about whether this is a good place to be. You see how poorly mistimed the information? This is what I think people are doing all the time now, is they're getting information after they're fully able to act on it. And what that means is we see a lot of people doing what we call high-cost slides. You, fl you slide through something. After the slide, you have fewer options than you had before. And then you find out, is that a good place to be? I can't fully act on that information now. I can act on it to some degree, but I can't fully act on it. So here's one way you can talk to this culture before you have a chance to talk to them more deeply about spiritual things. One thing that people really don't want to do in America these days is lose options. And you, one thing you can help people see, you can help young people see, you can help youth in your church see this, is that a lot of these things, what they amount to is giving up options before you've really made a clear choice. People don't want to do that, but they don't have any way to see that that's exactly what's likely to happen if they do things the way that's common now in the world. Whereas, as I said before, healthy commitments about freely chosen constraints. To be committed, we will be constrained. When we've made a choice to give up other choices, we're going to be constrained, but we chose the constraints. The problem with sliding is that people are becoming constrained when they're not even realizing that that's happening. They're bought the idea that there's a benefit and they're not seeing the loss. And the problem with this is transition by itself isn't transformation. Deciding, when people make a clear decision, it sets up better follow-through uh, because a person's going to own the sense that I chose you and I chose this path. Let me comment on Joshua 3 and then make a couple of comments about uh, ministry with people before marriage. And as I said, there's other panels. There's a couple of panels. I was going to talk about a couple concepts about preserving dedication in marriage, but you know, there's books and other things. There's a CD I have that's uh, teaching a group of couples about commitment, not in a church context, in a, a community context. It's pretty good for that stuff if you want. But let me focus on this as we, we wrap up and uh, close here in five minutes. Think about when Israel crossed over into the Promised Land, because it's very interesting what happens there. So they marched around in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Uh, the, you know, they come up before it, the spies went in, giants were grasshoppers, can't do it, blah, blah, blah. And now everybody, that generation's died off, except for Joshua and Caleb, and they're back now coming up to the River Jordan, and they're going to cross into the Promised Land. This is a fascinating example of a major transition where the people really know something is happening, where there's a really clear before and after. And a lot of very powerful commitments in life are going to have a strong sense 
that sort of fits these characteristics. One of these things I just noticed uh, two weeks ago, I mean, I thought about this passage for a long time, but so here they are, they're going to cross over, and as you, as, you, as you probably recall, the priests are going to walk into the water with the ark, right? And the water bunches up, I don't know which passage, translation I got the word bunch from, but you know, there's some city further away where the water stops, and they go through on dry land, and there's the stones marking it, right? So they, they're going to mark it with stones, but the new, the new insight that I had the other week that I thought was just fascinating, a lot of times people think about rivers as depicting time, right? As sort of the flow of, of time, uh, river time. You know, uh, it's interesting that the waters not only stop so that they can cross on dry land, I think there's a sense of time sort of stopping for a moment. That there's a real, it's not just the continuation of the flow, the way things have always been, something's actually stopping as we transition from one state to the next. There's this strong sense of a, a portal of time, a portal through time. And we were here and now we're there. We used to be there, now we're here. That's a real transformative transition. That's a real strong, that's not sliding. That's deciding with something being really clear and deliberate. And that clear and deliberate sort of transition is going to m much more strongly support transformation and real change. Nancy and I and our two sons were driving back from the zoo about 14 years ago or so. And we're in the minivan. This is in Denver. We're driving back from the zoo. And uh, uh, I'm driving. Nancy's here. The two boys are in this seat. And uh, I said something where I did the thing wrong where you used me or I, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm a very good writer, but speaking out loud, I often get that wrong, and Nancy, like, always gets that instantly. And so I did one of those things, and she, she turned around and said to the boys, hey, boys, I want you to, to see something. And they're like, okay. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, your dad speaks around the world. He writes books and journal articles and stuff. Um, but he can still be improved. Uh, I, I'm helping him here with his grammar. So see, he just said this, and he should have said I instead of me, or me instead of I. And I want you to notice that you can always be improved. And I said, I'm not so sure I want to be improved. And Nancy said, and she has these great one-liners over the years, if you didn't want to be improved, you shouldn't have gotten married. Which is great, because she's taught, that's not a sliding thing. That's like you decided to be with me in life. You decided to be improved. Uh, maybe you didn't know in all the ways. Uh, okay, closing with a quick comment or two. And I can make these points quickly, because you can work through what it means for you and your ministry, because you might make different decisions than other people have made. One is in terms of premarriage education and counseling. And let me just pick on the cohabitation thing for a second there, and then I'll make a quick point about marital counseling. I've talked with many different churches around the country over the years that have come to different policies about what they will do with a couple in premarital education that's living together, whether they will insist that they move out or whether they will push at least for, like, no sex, or be in separate rooms. Different churches have made different decisions. 
uh, Scott Kadersha mentioned earlier what their policy is here. Which I, and I, all I want to say about that is it's great to have a clear policy. I've heard pretty articulate uh, thinking about how hard to push on that and for who. And you should certainly at least recognize whatever your church policy is, it might be a lot more complicated in the very increasingly likely situation that the couple already has a child, uh, where you may want to think twice about whether you're going to ask one of those people to move out of the house in terms of what the effect is on the child at that point. But I'm not making that decision for you. I'm just saying there's a lot of things that are important to think about. Here's the thing I want to suggest to you. What you really want to look for premaritally is whatever that couple's circumstance in history, whether they're having sex, whether, and most couples are having sex, if you don't know that. If you all know that. Uh, uh, living together or not, is how did that come about? How did that develop? Because you were looking for the person who actually might not marry this person if they hadn't gotten stuck. You want to be asking about that. Uh, in addition to whatever your policy is in terms of what they might need to do, I would be doing some interview about that and trying to figure that out. And I would be real delicate about it if they already have a child together because you kind of you work in a delicate balance there in terms of well, what's this mean if I lead them to think that they may not be, have chosen each other except they got this stuck. Uh, notice what you're looking for now, though, with that couple. Say so that's the couple you're dealing with. And this gets close to this point here that I'll close on. If you do have that couple, and they've slid all the way through all those things, and they're stuck, and that's part of why now they're moving toward marriage, you want to help them have a stronger conversion at this moment. You want to help them have a serious stop in the river and crossing, however you decide to do it. You want this to they're actually going to have a much harder time than another couple having a clear demarcation between before and after. And you want to help them to have a really strong sense of we were here and now we're here in terms of what our commitment is. And just so think about how to do that. Last comment relates to marital counseling. So let's say you're doing uh, uh, the re-engage kind of thing, or you're just seeing couples when they're distressed and they come into your office. 40 years ago or so, or 30 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, 20, 30 years ago, I did a lot of marital counseling. I don't do any anymore. But 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when I was seeing a lot of couples, whatever else would walk in the door, I could pretty well assume that at some point the two had made a really clear choice to be married, that they had made a clear choice of each other. And I don't think you can, you can assume that now. What you should assume now is that when you have a young couple that comes in, and I'd say under 40, and they've, uh, they're struggling, you can't assume that there was ever a super clear decision by one. There probably was for the other. But that one of them could be sitting there on the sofa across from you thinking, if they could articulate it. They, they probably can't articulate it. But if they could, they'd say, I don't even know how I got here. I never chose this. So you're, you're starting to try to work with the couple where one of the two people doesn't even have a sense that they chose anything about how they got in front of you now. And what I've been encouraging people to do when it comes to counseling or a re-engage kind of thing is think about kind of starting or including in some of what you do a diagnosis of the history of commitment. How did it develop and how did they get here? Because you're going to want to know something about that or you're going to want them to think something about that because 
if they're really going to do better, think about the, the great stories you hear out of this uh, re-engage program here. Um, you're looking for a kind of, uh, I mean, they could already be a believer or they might not, but you're looking for like a conversion here. You're looking for a transformation. You're looking for a real clear, I'm doing this. We're going a different direction. And that's going to be especially important for the person who doesn't have a clear sense that they decided to be there where they are right now in front of you. Okay, I'll close on that note. Uh, there's other resources if you want. There's some things we'll send you for free noted on the back of the brochure. If you just either email us your email address and information or leave that with me. Otherwise, uh, have a great rest of the conference and thank you for coming today and hearing me. Take care.